Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. How's it going, movie fans? Uh, got a great movie for you today, and we can't thank you enough for picking Saving Private Ryan in our most recent uh, listeners poll. <laughs> yeah, we're both so happy about it. We really wanted to talk about this one and not... Inglorious Bastards or Overlord or even Hacksaw Ridge, right, Tay? I think those all would have been a bit more fun, <laughs> or at least maybe I would have been able to like get myself up for those movies versus this one where I was just mm-hmm. dreading going into it the whole week. Yeah, yeah, like I think you actually cut it out of our Dunkirk episode, but there was more there was more discussion about how we didn't want people to vote for Saving Private Ryan, but by the time we dropped the Dunkirk episode, the vote had been done. Yeah, and I think you wisely kind of removed it. But now here I am. I'm sort of I'm sort of giving you a peek behind the curtain. Tay and I were not stoked to, you know, try to uh, what's the what's the phrase? Try to eat the elephant that is Saving Private Ryan, even if it is one bite at a time. That seems like a fair expression. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a real you know it's a real hill to climb to put it in 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 more war appropriate terms. Yeah, that's being uh, but I think literal I th- with it, Tim. Yeah, I think I think we found found some ways into it, and we will get to it in a bit. But we're going to switch things up a little bit here. Um, I've gotten some feedback here and there that this this podcast isn't personal enough, right? We're all business. We're all we're always in the weeds on these movies. Well, I'm so really that we'd personal. open it up. I think You're the comments were about Tay. you not being personal enough yeah me refusing to to be friendly right people know so much about you tay you're so comfortable with sharing about your life things like that you have your brother on the podcast yeah social media i'm all over it (laughs) no i i thought we we'd make it a little bit more informal at the top here and uh and just catch up so tay how are you doing how's how you been since last time we recorded uh it this is busy time of year for for editors uh like myself who are covering a lot of event stuff you want to get your uh deadlines done before christmas so it's it's really busy season but uh i've also been able to squeeze in a lot of good movies lately there's some good stuff coming to theaters really close by here so been kind of excited on that end and that's kind of been my reprieve from work for the past bit Um, yeah we're hitting a good run of movies uh, a couple which i wasn't able to see recently but tonight uh we're planning to go see decision to leave yes um uh, Park Chan Wook's latest movie, um, who you may remember, we did uh, The Handmaiden with uh, Haley Rose Malowin. Um Same director, apparently similar subject matter. This is I've heard it described as an erotic thriller set on a mountain. Uh, so you know I'm excited. We, you know, I can't wait. We also have covered Old Boy too. We should mention we have covered two true. Park oh, Chan Wook right. movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Handmaiden, I think, does seem more like it's going to pair with this upcoming film, though, more than mm-hmm. Old Boy, but. Um, it's all part of seeing the evolution of a world-class director, and uh, it's probably one of my most anticipated films of the year, so very excited for that tonight. Um, uh, how you been, though? I know you've been sick. Uh, I, I've had better weeks. A couple of days ago, I came down with uh, what I what I can only assume is food poisoning. I've been trying to sort of track the, uh, the evidence, and uh, I've been keeping an eye out and testing, making sure it's not COVID, because I know some people who have had the same more uh, gastrointestinal issues and had it be a part of COVID, but I'm so far negative and symptom free otherwise, which is why I'm still going to the movie tonight. Um, But uh, as, as I'm sure I'm not alone in being, you know, particular about what kind of movies you watch when you're sick. And I really like digging into some bad movies when I'm sick. It kind of like aligns with how I'm feeling. And I also, 
you know, if I fall asleep or if I have to run to the washroom during the movie, I know I'm not missing anything. Are we talking like and, B uh, movies, like is in bad movies? Or are we talking like uh, rom-coms? I think I mean, I think this was, well, let's not denigrate the entire rom-com genre at once. Why but not? I think this movie, <laughs> 1997's uh, The Devil's Advocate, which uh, Netflix served me up and I, and I, uh, I gulped down. I have not um, seen I that. I think it was in... I think it was intended as a good movie. Uh, I don't think it came out like that. It, to to really sum it up quickly, Keanu Reeves is just a just a simple Florida lawyer who is uh, who is headhunted by a New York law firm. He moves to Manhattan with his wife, played by Charlize Theron. Wow. He meets the the head partner of the firm, played by Al Pacino, who, if the title didn't give it away, it turns out he's literally the devil. Um, Did you say 1997 or 77? Yeah, 1997. Okay, I was this gonna, is, thank God. I, I saw someone on the, on the box review said, like, this belongs, like, in the pantheon of movies where they clearly chose the title and then wrote the script. And they're just like, well, if we're going to take the term the devil's advocate to its to its end, what's that going to mean? It's its like, its what if you were a lawyer or worked with the devil? Yeah. Insane movie. <laughs> a truly insane movie um i thought i was hallucinating i thought i might have a fever but it was just uh it was just the movie they were making um so that's where i'm at i'm feeling better you know i've uh, i've detoxed with some better movies in the meantime uh and uh one of which uh, i mean we got a great movie coming up i just want to say at the top of the episode now we'll let you know what our next movies are going to be and in december we have a bit of a scheduling conundrum. We're hitting episode 40, which we're very excited about. And as you know, on the 10s, we do Denny Villeneuve. Um, Denny doesn't really have any Christmas movies or any holiday movies per se, um, but we're still going to dig into Prisoners, uh, his uh, 2013 film, I want to say, uh, with my brother James Stacy, our usual Denny guest. I think there's some Thanksgiving in this movie, if nothing else. I think it's maybe slightly holiday aligned. It definitely feels cold. It it is cold. <laughs> it's also sad yeah. and nihilistic and not particularly warm for the holiday season. So we'll follow that up with some form of a holiday focused uh uh listener vote. Sounds about right. right. Yeah. To like kind of yeah. make up for our miserable 40th episode. <laughs> yeah. But the upside of, of us doing episode 40 um, and, and the, the headline here is that we're kind of changing up our draw. At, at the last on episode 10, 20, and 30, we gave away a Blu-ray of the movie that we were covering. And we're going to keep doing that because Tay and I are strong believers in physical media. becomes more valuable every day. I, I went on a tirade with the last one talking about how when you buy a movie digitally, they might just take it away when, like, Sony's rights change, things like that. It's important to own the physical media that you like. Um, so we're going to keep giving away Blu-rays, but we know that not everyone out there has a Blu-ray player or really wants to store Blu-rays. So we, we're doing something for you as well. The person who wins the draw will receive a Blu-ray of Prisoners, and they will get to pick the movie for an episode we record. The episode will come out in the new year we're aiming for January. It might be February if we get really behind in our holidays, but it will be a bonus episode. It won't preempt any of our usual bi-weekly episodes, and you get to pick the movie. It could be a movie that you hate that you want us to dissect. It could be your favorite movie. We can't guarantee we'll like it, but the episode is all about whatever movie you pick. So that's uh, that's the the upgrade to, uh, to these giveaways. So keep an eye on Instagram to find out how you can enter the draw. And at least you can't pick Saving Private Ryan anymore. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, to get into Saving Private Ryan, this one feels silly to even have to tell you the synopsis, and that kind of aligns with why we're so reticent to talk about it, is that this is such an iconic pillar of modern Western cinema that, like, what are Tay and I even going to say about it? What are we going to help you see that maybe you didn't see or reveal to you or provide some insight. So one of the most talked about movies is considered one of the greatest war movies of all time. If you skip this one because it felt so present, uh, then here's the synopsis for you, uh, the the rare few of you. Uh, After surviving D-Day, an army ranger squad is tasked with finding a paratrooper in war-torn France in order to escort him safely home. Starring Tom Hanks and directed by Steven Spielberg, Saving Private Ryan was released July 24th, 1998. Uh, Check our show notes to see where to watch it right now. Paramount Plus has it. um, Ah, As they are wont to do with their properties. Paramount Plus. Uh, I was able... I was able to stream it on Paramount Plus because, uh, at least here in Canada, we've got that McDonald's Monopoly. And one of their promotions is, like, if you just have, like, six Monopoly squares, it doesn't matter what they are or if they're winners, you qualify for three months free of Paramount Plus. Hey, so there you go. That's, that's, that's not bad. I was able to, you know, watch Saving Private Ryan, but uh, I don't really... I mean, otherwise, Paramount Plus has been... Paramount Plus has been pushing Tulsa King, uh, a Sylvester Stallone straight to streaming TV show, and I'm not really interested. Fantastic. Yeah, good for Paramount Plus getting ahead there. (laughs) Um, It is awesome that they, like, I just am surprised when movies like Saving Private Ryan, there's like one avenue to watch it if you don't own the physical media. Um, Mm -hmm. For the record, uh, I don't usually buy these compilation Blu rays where there's multiple movies on one in one case. they're usually low quality. Yeah, but so this one was a special edition. I got like it's called the Sapphire Collection, and it has Braveheart, Saving Private Ryan, and and Gladiator, all in Blu-ray. And nice. Br- the best part is that Braveheart and uh, Gladiator have extended director commentaries. Uh, Saving Private Ryan doesn't, but I'd still say like if you're looking to just spend like, under fifteen bucks and own these three movies on Blu-ray, like check out this three disc sapphire collection it's not something i'd typically recommend but this was a good set always a sweet deal um but uh yeah so i mean it's saving private ryan like what is there to say i i think maybe one way to dig into this is because from our perspective in the in the long-standing shadow of this movie uh it's so clear to us that it's a big deal you know it may have been they may have shown you scenes of it in your high school history class there are, you know, legacy screenings that they do at theaters around Memorial Day or around Remembrance Day. Let's talk about the fact that, like, Spielberg wasn't entirely convinced this would be a huge hit. Um, I've got via a uh, an oral history in the L.A. Times, uh, Spielberg says, uh, I didn't anticipate the success of this movie. In very early screenings, certain associates and other people in my life were saying that I made it too tough. I feared that almost nobody would see it because the word of mouth would spread quickly after the first 25 minutes. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's, I think it's an interesting thing to look at that, like, it is too intense. Uh, and also the other thing to note is that it, based on my research, again, I wasn't around at the time, but in the, the two decades prior to this, most war movies were more concerned with Vietnam and as well, such, I, they were largely, they were largely anti-war. They were look at the futility of war or let's make a joke out of it in terms of like one of the most successful TV shows of all time, MASH. Um, 
there had been a, a bit of a a uh, a bit of a drop in World War II movies and in American valor and patriotism being prevent, presented on screen. Whether or not there is in this movie, which we'll talk about. Yeah, I think this is this movie presents a mixed bag in terms of the levels of patriotism that it reflects about America. But mm-hmm. I do think that like this was a significant release because of all those factors you just mentioned. Like there there not being a world a significant World War Two movie for almost two decades prior to this leaves a huge gap to be filled. And when mm-hmm. you have a movie come out that is filmed with such ferocity and at this scale and magnitude with this level of production, with this level of direction, with this high caliber of acting talent, I really think this the is scale. Yeah, this is just a rare uh, per- bag of perfection. Like I know I've already said how much I didn't want to have to talk about this movie in podcast form, and that's largely because of the reputation that precedes it. It is mm-hmm. a movie that, like Tim said, you probably had to watch in your high school history class. It's a movie that probably gets seen more times a year because of non-entertaining purposes. You know, like this movie is shown... Uh, for historical reasons almost as a document yes uh and yeah. so it, it it transcends a lot of what tim and i talk about on the show in terms of cinema but it does so in a very highly cinematic form like the way that this movie looks and feels is all tied into like this idea that spielberg might have thought was too tough on its audience because generally speaking um tim and i weren't huge movie watchers in the early 90s when we were kids but or, or yeah. in the mid 90s when we were kids but it goes without saying this would have been a tough watch for any movie watcher at this point in time because not many movies had done what this movie does in terms of visual graphic violence and gore um and focusing on it right like focusing on how it connects to real life not like this is some monster movie where people's arms are going to get ripped off and all this stuff uh this takes place in the real world uh, with real historical people that these tragedies really happen to and to do something like this with the level of ferocity like i said earlier uh spielberg deserves a ton of credit and what a trailblazer this ended up becoming yeah it really sort of set the standard for war movies uh in the modern era right like it does feel like almost every successful war movie since then is in one way or another being like it 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 has that Omaha Beach scene in mind when it's saying like, well, this is our big climactic scene. This is when we're taking the hill. This is when we're defending this area. This is when we're trying to stop them from destroying this tank. No matter what it is, it, it is all these hallmarks of putting you on the ground, putting you in their boots, p- providing an experience that isn't an observation. There are earlier movies that do the Omaha Beach invasion. Yeah. As they mentioned in that oral history, um, baby boomer audiences had previously seen the 1962 version of the battle in Daryl F. Zanuck's The Longest Day. However, it was shot from a distance, right? So you're almost seeing it from, I mean, the most generous view, uh, the most generous description would be to say you're seeing it from like a commander's perspective, like you're moving pieces on a board. And it's still not about that experience. It's still not necessarily about the horror of war. There are earlier movies that try to get across the mental toll on people's minds, even pre-Vietnam War movies. But it's it's not about being in the action. Because, again, the 
the number of plates that you're spinning to try to make this sequence work is insane. I mean, it's uh, it's you've got some notes here. It's a twelve million dollar scene. There are fifteen hundred extras borrowed from the Irish uh, Army reserves. Um, they shot with extras who uh, were amputees, so that when they simulated having their arms amputated, the the prosthetics appeared more realistic. And that's not a were hiding limbs. That's not an unused trope for these kinds of movies. But the mm-hmm. amount of actors that they had that were amputees, like 20 to 30, mm-hmm. they quoted, which is, you know, if you have a stunt like this, sometimes you get an amputee actor in for one scene, mm-hmm. like one. <laughs> uh, so the amount of extras, um, the amount of money spent on this scene, uh, pretty unprecedented. It's really rare to see a 20 a minute scene for... cost $12 million. Mm-hmm. I saw a quote for 17,000 squibs. Ooh. Uh, used during the Omaha Beach <laughs> sequence, right? And I mean, it's just the it's the coordination. You have that many people. That's where you end up having to have some sort of a military operation because that that's one of the more fascinating but also boring parts of military action is the logistics. Is how do you communicate something that comes from one person, your commander in chief? down to hundreds of thousands of people. How are they all on the same page? It's where training comes into it, where lines of communications are so important that when you have 1,500 extras, it's it's the same thing on this smaller scale. Is You know, if you have... You have a director. You have the safer... Yeah, you have a director, but, like, where everyone is is a matter of safety on this set because there are pressurized air tubes under the sand that are doing explosions that can be somewhat close to your actors and then there are actual explosive charges that are packed into places where they know actors won't be that they can also set up there with specially filtered sand that's packed around them so that the sand doesn't become shrapnel and kill people right like all of these things there are real risks and then there's you know there's obviously the economy of it if someone screws up where they're supposed to be you have to reset you have to get more film you have to re-roll i mean it, it's a, this the staggering scale of this opening scene let alone this very long movie that has multiple harrowing scenes is uh, is truly impressive well yeah i think we we would be remiss without talking about this opening scene because it does symbolize what this movie kind of did for pop culture and for cinema uh this opening scene is absolutely legendary i highly doubt we'll see a war scene ever shot this well or effectively ever in movie history again Mm -hmm. um i think to the point where this scene generally ruins other war movies entirely because of Mm -hmm. the once you've seen this it's really hard to not compare any war movie you see to this opening omaha beach scene even to the rest of the movie's uh downfall i guess maybe i think like the movie really takes like a steep step down after the scene where it's kind of like a weird audience reaction of okay i'm still catching my breath from that opening scene and we're about to enter Mm -hmm. like more harrowing terrain here but there's like a slow a slow point there that really like I don't know how to feel as an audience member. I feel kind of lulled into a sense of uh, discomfort almost while I'm waiting for the next traumatic event to happen after that opening. Well, yeah, it's like you, yeah, you go through that opening and then they're like, okay, now you got to learn about all these guys, right? And you got to learn about this mission. And, you know, like they, 
they they show you this horror of war and then they set the stakes for the movie after it where they're like you might have to go through that again and it's for one person right which i think is an effective way to do it and before we move on from the scene i do just want to i think the scene is one of the ways in which this movie is very much i think more than most war movies i've seen it's about the gulf between combatant and non-combatant right so this scene is sort of a lot, I think, first and foremost, for being experiential. It puts you in the storm, right? You are in the boat, then you are going up the beach, you are seeing people die around you, you're getting first-person shots. Um, we've talked many times now, we talked in Dunkirk and through a bunch of our horror movies, that sound is sort of your most tactile tool for getting the audience to experience something. And I thought it'd be a good chance to talk about what if I got this right, even what a J cut is, hmm. uh, Taylor, because that's how they introduce the Omaha beach sequence is you hear it before you see it. Yeah. That's a J cut. Um, and if, and if I'm, if I'm understanding right, J cut is literally like in editing software, you have like a, uh, a horizontal, um, a horizontal bar. That's your video footage. And beneath it, there's a horizontal bar that is your audio track. Correct. And if the audio track comes first, it's like it juts forward to the left in your left to right timeline. It's like your like audio your audio feed will start before your video feed, so therefore it shapes mm-hmm. like a J. Um, and then yeah. the opposite way would be the visual shown before the audio comes in, and that's called an L cut yeah. because it does the opposite direction on yeah. the editing bar. So that just, you know, for our listeners who really care, that's your little inside baseball. You can Next time you hear a scene or hear something before you see it, you can turn to your friend and say, that's a J cut. And your friend will tell you to shut up yeah. and stop being a nerd. Yeah. Um, Go back to editing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this movie, especially the sequence is largely experiential. And I think it's trying to say, trying to do, make the best case for this is what it's like to have been there, um, to feel it, to hear it, to see the loss, see the carnage and things like that. And then the overall arc of this movie being about, a group of soldiers saving one man. Uh, I think it's about that calculus about what will the survivor make of everyone else's sacrifice. Um, I don't think this movie is like an answer or a decree on the idea of American patriotism or how worthwhile war is. I think it's at best a question. I think it's saying, does this actually make sense? And I think he, you know, he, this is not a true story. Uh, it's it's inspired by some ideas about like families who lost entire an entire generation of sons, but I think Spielberg very wisely picked this to be like let's pick the most frustratingly virtuous mission, where it's like we're all going to come together for one guy and we don't even know him, and it's a decision made by generals. And throughout the entire movie, we're going to question it and poke holes in it. And every single scene, one of our guy, almost every single scene, but every encounter, pretty much, one of our guys is going to die. We will lose one more guy each step along the way to trying to save this one guy. And when we get there, he won't even want to leave. I have my orders too, sir. They don't include me abandoning my post. I understand that, but this changes things. I don't see that it does, sir. The chief of staff for the United States Army says it does. I struggle to see whether or not this movie is actually as uplifting as it felt in my memory. Because I don't think I watched this for a decade. I, I um, definitely don't think it exudes a sense of 
explicit patriotism. I think it's a very complicated question of patriotism in this film, which mm-hmm. is why I think it's very it's like a strong film that will stand the test of time because any of these hoorah American war films really wear on me after like a viewing Mm -hmm. or you just kind of get sick of being bombarded with like we're awesome and we'll die to save our country kind of ideas this is so much more complex and interesting this is more questioning the commands of higher-ups for the decision to save one man at the risk of the lives of many others uh, for the sake of a morality tale uh, that is important to a handful of people yeah, I mean, I, I think, like, you can almost, I, I love how they set it up, that they give you this great, like, the typist realizes that all the brothers have died, and then she goes to her superior, to superior, to superior. Yeah, that seems great. And you have the beautiful, beautifully shot scene where they come and they, they inform the mother, and then the general, like, has partially memorized the Bixby letter, and you're like, yeah, this is so, like, it's beautiful, it's great, and then they're like, is it, though? And you watch these guys go through hell and complain and like the most begrudging military service I feel like you see on screen it's always it feels like it's always so much more yeah it's a struggle but you're doing the right thing right and especially like for a movie that I think could have been about you know the right thing of the of World War II being that you know we're taking down the Nazis who were systematically exterminating entire classes and ethnicities of people uh, it's not. It's about saving a white guy from you know Missouri or Ohio. Um, I think. I think. Yeah, it, it became much more complex in my mind because honestly, the last time I watched this may have been in high school, and it was like, here's how realistic it is, and it opens and closes with an American flag. It must be patriotic, right? And then you think about it, and you're like, I don't know. It's pretty desaturated American flag. That's exactly the it's, point. Yeah, it's largely translucent, and then you have this super saccharine bookend that I think is both the most interesting part, but then in, in execution, one of the weakest parts of the movie. Because uh, I, I really like that they frame it around this this old guy. I think it puts the onus on the audience to be like, are, are you worth the sacrifice? What have you done with what they gave you? I can't stand how much dialogue there is in the final scene. Him talking to the grave and then him telling his wife, again, not asking his wife, was I a good man? I think far in a far more complex nature, saying, telling his wife, saying, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I'm worth it. Well, that's what he does say. Tell me I've led a good life. What? Tell me I'm a good man. Yeah, yeah, I think that's way more interesting and way less defensible than saying, am I? And she's like, right? meh. You are. Yeah, yeah, right. She's like, sure, you had kids, and it's like, oh no, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if any of this movie was a good thing, or like any of the point of 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 what happened in this movie was a good thing. And, and I think that the question of the question maybe should have been left as more of a question uh, that the audience asks itself. Let let him and his wife have a moment at the grave. I don't need that dialogue. I don't even need. Mm. I didn't need the tension to connect to that this isn't Tom Hanks grown up. This is Matt Damon or Private Ryan grown up. Mm-hmm. I didn't need the tension there. I just wanted the moral question of was this mission worth it to persist at the end of the film? And it doesn't because mm-hmm. it lets you down with that dialogue that seems to undercut it. 
I think if you want to be on Spielberg's side about it, he may be intentionally obfuscating what's going on to make it more complex. You mean like obfuscating Private Ryan's life? Yeah, but also like what his message is with the movie instead of leaving it like a Rorschach test, right? Is the audience going to see, oh, it it was worth it. His wife says he's worth it. He's a good man. She's proud of him. So it's okay that that Miller and and Wade and all of them died on his behalf. And and I think it leaves it more to the audience to interpret it rather than leaving that question right there on the screen. Yeah. I don't know about that. And again, that's one that was one of the more gratifying parts about returning to this movie because as much as we were belly aching about it um when the, won the vote and at the top of this episode um, it was a super interesting rewatch to come back to this, especially after watching something like Dunkirk. I think we talked on the Dunkirk episode about how that's an interesting war movie because it is exploring a tactical retreat, which is not your usual type of victory for a war movie. And I think this one's just as unusual a story to tell. Well, it's kind of like a trek behind enemy lines, that kind of mm-hmm. story. I feel like this is a bit yeah. more common of a story, not necessarily this specific one, but versus Dunkirk, which I think is uniquely British in its mm-hmm. self-deprecation. Uh, I don't yeah. think that this uh, Saving Private Ryan is particularly patriotic in an overt way, but I also don't think it's self-deprecating. I think it's trying to find value in the decisions made by the characters, whether those decisions are in America's best interest or not. Um, mm. But I think this movie has a true love for its characters, which I think exists through Steven Spielberg's brilliant direction, um, through the casting that uh, apparently took a long time to get the right actors for the for these parts, um, mm-hmm. and the focus on what these characters are going to be doing throughout the film. Now, I I will say that I of course I like Tom Hanks and I like his I think he's a great actor. I think he's very overrated by society in terms of like i do not think he's one of the best actors working today i don't think he's he does very interesting projects in general to be honest at least not Mm. up my alley of films that i generally like but this i think is his best role and i do think he's a fantastic actor overall i just think this is almost going against type with this kind of casting um someone who is not very charismatic someone who is not very open uh who's very not very private yes not fatherly you know yeah exactly he's uh he's very like not avuncular even you know yeah yeah he um Um, he exudes all these qualities that typical tom hanks characters don't have who are typified usually by charisma uh and charm which this character has zero of Uh, it's all withheld yeah well that's it exactly it's it's withheld it's this calculated thing that, you know, he's he's doing what he has to do to survive as a guy who's commanding these people. It's highly intentional that he comes in. He is someone you can follow. And then throughout the movies, you get to know him. He's both like you trust him to handle military action and also understand the psychology of his troops. Right. Where they're the one of the first scenes after they leave Normandy and they're all questioning the orders. And he's talking about, like, here's what you say to your superiors. Here's what you don't. It's the captain. What about you? I mean, you don't gripe at all. I don't gripe to you, Riven. I'm a captain. He's a chain of command. Gripes go up, not down. Always up. You gripe to me. I gripe to my superior officer. So on, so on, so on. I don't gripe to you. I don't gripe in front of you. You should know that as a ranger. I'm sorry, sir, but uh, 
Let's say you weren't a captain, or maybe I was a major. What would you say then? Well, in that case, I say this is an excellent mission, sir, with an extremely valuable objective, sir. Worthy of my best efforts, sir. Moreover, I feel heartfelt sorrow for the mother of Private James Ryan. I'm willing to lay down my life and the lives of my men, especially you, Ryden, to ease her suffering. You learn a little bit more about him every time, but, like, the fact that it's Tom Hanks does half the work. It's care his his persona and his on-screen presence, no matter what character he's playing, is doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And like not too far into the movie, within the first third, you know, he has his talk with Sizemore where he's talking through the math. He knows that he's he's got ninety-four people killed, I wanna say. And he's saying, like, well, the only way if you're a commanding officer, the only way you can survive that is by convincing yourself that, like, you've saved 10 or 20 more for each one of those. And you see it right in the first scene. There's the sequence where they're at the base of the nest, and he's got the, the mirror on the knife, and he's looking around the corner, and they have to storm another nest. And he's like, he's like, all right, well, we got to start going. He goes, you two, you're in. They get mowed down. He goes, you two are next. You're in. They get mowed down. And then, like, it takes, like, six immediate deaths before he changes his strategy which again is there's a lot i think of spielberg being like this is how military action works on a, on a scale like this with the, in this period and with this technology right like of course it would change in vietnam when you had helicopters it would change in modern warfare when you have drones different types of explosives long-range stuff but at that time this was the strategy and it worked you know the allies won the war and this battle but like what they don't often talk about is that you're just you're like well if we throw enough people at the problem someone will get through or if we overwhelm a machine gun can only point in one direction at once so if we come from left and right one of those two sides is going to get mowed down the other one's going to get through but anyway we clearly have one war historian that, in the in the podcast yeah, yeah yeah with that tangent uh maybe we should hop into our scene. sure we kind of struggled with deciding where this scene ends, uh, but we're so we're gonna just talk about kind of like this whole twenty-minute bit. But we're gonna focus in on this specific like 10, 15 minutes here. It's about an hour twenty-four into the film, goes to about an hour forty into the film, and this is on route to saving Private Ryan. The company decide to ambush a nearby German watch post. Uh, Medic Wade dies in combat here, and the group face a difficult set of circumstances with the surviving German POW. Yeah, I mean, I, this was one of the scenes that stood out to me. There's there's some things we'll talk about in terms of how it's produced, uh, the cinematography at play. I think it leans into some of the things I talked about in terms of, like, making the audience a direct uh, sort of in-person observer of the atrocities of war. But the one thing I wanted to start with was a question. I have an idea, but I'm not convinced of it, is why Captain Miller insists that they take this this gun this gunner nest at this uh uh satellite state not satellite it's a radar, uh, radar station yeah. um what's yeah. your theory uh i i think he's still doing the math i think i think he's still thinking like you know what we're here it's our duty to take it if we don't more people may die who don't spot that it's a nest right like less focused people they could take down an entire company we we had the wherewithal to notice that there's a gunner there and we have enough people to take it you know, assuming a couple casualties. Um, so I, I, th I think he's still doing the math, but I'm not 100% clear because 
they all like basically everyone most of the people in the squad argue against doing it and they all make pretty good arguments the thing that really stands out for me at this point in the film is that it's the first time that anyone disagrees with him let alone all of them uh there's a couple Mm -hmm. like pretty bullish personalities in the in like the group but overall they don't ever disagree with captain miller they might disagree amongst each other but never do they really mm-hmm. question his commands until this point where they all question whether this ambush is worth it. We can still skip it and accomplish our mission. I mean, this isn't our mission, right, sir? Well, that's what you want to do, Malish? You just want to leave it here so they can ambush the next company that comes along? No, sir, that's not what I'm saying. I'm simply saying it seems like an unnecessary risk given our objective, sir. Our objective is to win the war. Sir, I just uh, I don't have a good feeling about this one. And and he's not even saying like, I'm not gonna do it. He's just saying like, look, I got a bad feeling about this. This doesn't feel right. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. And they all kind of echo this sentiment. Yet Miller seems to be particularly headstrong in this moment. So I think your point is probably closer to being right than this theory, where he's literally just doing the math and saying like if we don't take this out they're going to kill a lot more americans next time an american group comes through here but i do think that there's something to like him going a little mad at this point in the film like this is kind of where it it starts taking shape um this is where his hand starts getting really bad yeah Yeah. and he and it's mostly because of his dialogue and his uh the way he speaks kind of changes to the rest of the group he's not respecting their opinions or thoughts like he did throughout where he's more like mm-hmm. quietly contemplating what people are saying about him and to him yeah uh, this is more like rejection like outright uh, uh, rejecting their ideas even to the point where he's gets mad and berates sergeant horvath a little bit maybe i should go up the middle sir the way you run i don't think so maybe i should go left sir Maybe you should shut up. Yeah. And it's it's odd that he directs some very specific anger in this moment. So it just seems like a lot is getting to Captain Miller at this point. And as far as I remember, not anything right before this specifically triggers that. It's just kind of like the journey. So if up to this point, everything has kind of well, yeah, bombarded like, him. Yeah, like, you know, is he, at, is he at 97 dead because of him? 98, 100, more than 100 at that point because you had already lost... You had lost Vin Diesel, um, uh, at least some. No, it's else. just a, it's just a. It's just yeah, Vin so far. Barzo, because it's it's yeah, it's Caparzo, and then they go where they see the downed plane. Yeah. that had like the steel plates added, which would have been my other pick for a scene. That's a phenomenal scene. There's just not as much action um, there, so that's why I wanted to do this yeah. scene. Oh, um, yeah, but yeah. also in that scene, they they bring up that whole the overarching debate of like they were One they were many. bringing. What were they bringing in? Like a vehicle for a one brigadier man? general? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's like right. they had a general who was going to come in again. Like, like you imagine, like, oh, if they bring back Ryan, is this a PR stunt for the for the the military? That's right, yeah, and it's like a hundred percent. And then it's like, yeah. And in, in this other scene, they're bringing this brigadier general in, so they graft additional steel plate protection to the bottom of the plane, and they don't tell the pilot yeah. who just like crash lands. Everyone dies except for him, and they all died because the military was trying to protect this general more so than they would any other soldier. And miscommunicated, which is like your classic military thing, where like they told everybody except the guy who needed to know, the pilot. And 
that scene is highly reflective of the major issue that we've already discussed, which is the sacrifice of many men for one man. Um, and this scene really, uh, or I guess we kind of chose the scene because it goes in a bit of a different direction with that. Um, but I do think all the circumstances leading up to this point have kind of highlighted this more and more, this idea that like what we're doing isn't worth it. And maybe that's just the point that, captain miller is at when he's saying we need to just take this radar station mm-hmm. um forget our main objective yeah yeah no it, it's complicated if nothing else he's like yeah he's either doing the math or, or he's just sort of frustrated and like well this is something they'd want us to do or maybe he's hoping it just ends it who knows but it definitely yeah it's a it's a great point in the development of miller's character and like what we know about him what we've seen him do but regardless, they move into the attack. They find that they sort of get everyone volunteered or voluntold as to their positions. Um, and then, yeah, we haven't talked about him yet, but... Uh, um, Upham? Private Upham, who's played by uh, Davies. Jeremy Davies. Um, Jeremy Davies, who you may recognize from Lost. That's definitely where I recognized him from. Um, and they bring him along. He's not part of their typical team, but he, they needed a translator who could speak German and French. Yeah. Yeah, because they lost some translators in the Omaha Beach storm. Um, so they bring him along, and he largely acts as audience surrogate. And actually, apparently, halfway through the shoot, I've got I've got this quote from Davies. Halfway through the shoot, Stephen took me aside and said he'd seen some of the dailies and that he'd been inspired to start telling Ryan from Upham's POV. He told me that Upham represented the audience more than any other character, given that over the course, of course... Most of us will never experience war, and Upham was only trained to serve as an interpreter in non-combat situations. So I think definitely what we are going to talk about, and uh, clearly very wise of uh, of Spielberg to to know that it again would start bridging that gap between audience and characters on screen, or non-combatants and combatants, to focus a little bit more on Upham's POV, which I think takes more shape as the movie goes on. But this is a key point in that. Uh, now that you say it, I can see the POV style changing throughout the, as it gets later in the film now. But I, I you know, like it's it is kind of obvious at the beginning when they when Tom Hanks recruits him that he's going to be our conduit, almost our audience conduit, yeah. because he's the new guy to the team. And then you have like those good character scenes where he's like trying to start conversation with the group. Two of them f-ing touch me with those little rat claws again. The f-ing back in formation. and they're just Mm -hmm. being like we already know all we all we need to know about each other like shut up kind (laughs) of what do you know about brotherhood get a load of this guy bitch (laughs) yeah and that and that's the difference right like it could be that in a different movie it could have been that he's just a soldier from another squad who also stormed the beach tons of combat experience he just doesn't know mellish and rybin and jackson and he still got to get to know them and he still operates as a uh, as a platform for exposition but spielberg takes that extra step and goes no he's a non-combatant right like he can barely hold his rifle right um he and he doesn't know anything about the guy so he can both be exposition and we can also feel more in his shoes because they don't even bother putting him into the action because he'd be a liability so in this case he sits back and watches and we watch him watch yeah which is one of the most brilliant aspects of the cinematography in this movie, um, we haven't said his name yet, but Janice Kaminsky, uh, who mm. has won Best Cinematography, I think, for Schindler's List only. 
Um, but he he goes way back with uh, with Spielberg. I think since Schindler's List, or maybe a movie or two before that. But they've been working together a very long time. Obviously, if Spiel if you're in Spielberg's main crew, you're pretty high end. Mm. Um, and I think Janice Kaminsky brought so much to this movie. Um, he's the one who decided on like the shutter speed, the way they shot uh, the opening beach sequences, and a lot of the action sequences shot at this really crispy shutter speed. And also, mm-hmm. he, the way he did the he treated the film stock was brilliant, which I only learned about when we were kind of getting ready to do this podcast. They shot the action scenes, at least. I think most of the film was shot the same way, but I know this for sure about the action scenes. Um, they stripped off the protective coating from the camera lenses, which make them very similar to what they would have been like in the 1940s. Um, and without this coating, the light bounces in the camera a lot more. It doesn't just refract around the, the lens itself. Um, it makes mm-hmm. it more diffused, softer, um, stays well, like retaining the focus. And this is then he completed this whole process by um, putting the negative through a bleach bypass, which apparent which I'd never heard of being done before. But apparently, this reduces the brightness and color saturation. Um, and in conjunction with the shutter speed being what it is, um, and the handheld look that he insisted upon, this has the look mm-hmm. of like war footage of documentary war footage from the beaches that we actually saw or that you can see like preserved in museums and things like that. Like this footage looks so legitimate mm-hmm. and bring that all back to our yeah. scene here. Sorry, go ahead, Tim. I was just going to say, yeah, Kaminsky's bleach bypass is kind of his iconic thing. Um, you can kind of see the overlap between this and like war of the worlds and minority report and Munich and sort of that. Yeah. Uh, Munich, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's DP on that too, but I mean, I feel you can definitely see war of the worlds and minority report in this with like the sort of dark, uh, subject hues and the really sort of bright lights. Yes, yeah. Um, that that also sort of sort of wash out. Um, I I don't know a ton about the bleach bypass, but just in discussion of those other movies, you hear it come up where people are like Kaminsky's doing his bleach bypass thing again, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's really his thing, and I think I think it works great here. But you were going back to the movie. Just back to our scene, like we were talking about this moment where Upham is using his telescope, and it becomes the POV of our of our camera and our cinematography rifle scope sorry it's a rifle scope my bad um it's just detached from the rifle um mm-hmm. but yeah we get these brilliant cuts into his perspective through the rifle scope of all the various soldiers uh kind of charging up the hill in the ambush mm-hmm. and you get all these like brilliant bits of action where you like i think the obfuscation of it is what makes this scene so brilliant is we're not watching like it's not omaha beach again we're not like in the action mm. we're not being bombarded instead we're watching from far back voyeuristic point of view of someone who is helpless to the scenario of watching his comrades go into a battle and being obfuscated by the smoke and the bullets and then mm-hmm. the chaos really starts right yeah i mean i think it's really wise that you know, we already did that at Omaha Beach, so why do it again? It's more powerful to make you feel a different sense of helplessness, right? Like, you're not under fire. Now you have to watch these guys that you've gotten to know. Be like, which one of them or how many of them are going to die? Who are we going to lose? And I think it confronts you more clearly because you're not distracted by the in-person explosions and screaming and bullets whizzing past your head and past the camera 
it, it, it confronts you more directly with that idea of like, this is the exact same format as Omaha Beach. They're storming a, a gunner nest. What's the cost going to be? Right? Like he goes, he goes, I've got, we've got a, a right, a central and left lane of approach. Someone's, someone's going to get hit. And who's it going to be? And I think it's this very palpable sense of, uh, of, of no, absolutely no agency, no control in the scene. You're just waiting to find out who's, who's dead. And what I love most about this scene upon a rewatch is uh, like, well, I, I think naturally you like the characters. Like they all have likable qualities, whether they're, mm-hmm. um, whether they're kind of rude or not. Um, but I like all these characters. And when they're having this moment before going into this battle, they all raise their concerns. The one guy who doesn't say anything is Medic Wade. Um, he does not get his moment. And that puts you in... Like, for those who watch a lot of movies, usually when a character is going into their death scene, they get a moment. You get you get yeah. that, that thing you're supposed to be like, this is why their death was worth it. This is why they are a hero and their death was totally worth the sacrifice. And this is quite extensively done in most film and TV shows. Especially I've noticed mm-hmm. in TV where like you have to give that character their moment before they go out in a blaze of glory. This you can always tell exactly it, right? to a point you, where you can you tell hear yeah. a bit. It's like, it's like, Oh, the character just told me some of their backstory or like they showed me a photo of their son or they say like, this is my last mission before I get to retire. You're like, that guy's so yeah. dead. Right. And then and Wade, I mean, Wade, does he even, does he even argue about not the even mission? Like one the line of, of dialogue? They kind of, they kind of make you forget about yeah. him. Right. But yet he compared to the rest, you're like, you're like, like Ryben's like, I got a bad feeling. It's like, Oh, there goes Eddie Burns. Like he's, he's probably not going to survive this assault. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this is such an effective method in terms of obscuring who is going to die in this battle. It makes the whole time when you're watching from this hopeless perspective of the rifle scope way more intense uh, because I don't think it's realistic to assume Jackson's going to die because he's been such a important sniper character so far. Mm-hmm. Um, Rybins, like you said, kind of has that line, but to me it always came off like he's worried that someone else is going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and later in the movie you find out he's lucky. He, he's, he's always been lucky. Good luck, Rybins. So he he makes it to the end. (laughs) Um, I actually love that about his character. That's a great um, character bit. But um, sadly, we lose one of the like quieter, um, more innocent, I guess you could say, characters in Wade, who doesn't get many lines throughout the film. But he's clearly like, well, he's obviously the medic, so he's not diving headfirst in all the combat scenarios like the rest of them. He's not as gung-ho. He's not as uh, abrasive of a person. Um, and it's a truly brutal death scene. Yeah, and I mean, he does get, like, again, uh, in a in a lesser movie, he has a monologue way earlier in this movie where he talks about his mother and how, like, he would wait up for his mother to come home from work. And I knew she just wanted to find out about my day. That she came home early. Just talk to me. And I still wouldn't move. I'd still pretend to just be asleep. This, I mean, phenomenal 
phenomenally written idea where he's like, but sometimes I would be awake and I would pretend to be asleep. And it's a phenomenal thing where you're like, you're a kid and you're like, I don't know why I'm doing yeah. this mean thing, but I'm doing it. And it's the kind of thing that you remember well into adulthood. And you're still like, why did I do that? It almost haunts you. And then it makes it. Yeah. And then, you know, it makes it when, when he's dying and he starts calling out for his mama, just so much yeah, worse. Yeah, so brutal. Because you have that, but they didn't put that speech right before this assault. It's it's just a little bit further back. The cards just got shuffled a little bit more. Um, and yeah, I mean, the death is great too. I, I think it's it, something that I'm not sure I've seen in another war movie where it's a medic dying and they're sort of performing their job on themselves as be- as best they can. I want to say this is, you know, the... he's got three or four gunshot wounds yeah. and he's asking where they are. He's asking is one part bleeding more than the others. Do I have exit wounds? And then they're like, they're like putting his hands on his wounds and he realizes that it got his liver and he starts panicking, which is absolutely horrifying to watch. And then he's just like, just give me a bunch of morphine. Like this is, <laughs> I, I know this is over. Yeah. We should say the actor's name too, Giovanni Rabisi, who's been in several like pretty major films, but overall not like mm-hmm. a widely used or recognized actor, I guess maybe recognizable, no, but he's... not. I think, I think he's recognizable, but like he's usually not a leading man. And I think when he doesn't work, it's because he's doing too much. Yes. He is one of those yes. actors yeah, yeah. who is like who is like really down to like go method or like to put on an accent or like have like a lisp or something like that for a little while, you know? But this is good. This is a good Giovanni. He's very subdued until he's literally bleeding out and he goes for it and it's I think earned. Yeah to sort of cry out for your mama and like be sort of slurring and stuff like that. He's not the only soldier we see in the film cry out for his mom when he's dying, which is just mm-hmm. an, it's like a brutal reminder of the opening scene where you see that on yeah, Omaha I think, beach. I forgot about that, but I think there's a lot of intentional mirroring of Omaha beach with this. Sequence. I agree with that. Um, I think that. And even at the end of the Omaha Beach sequence, there are those Americans that just point blank shoot and kill two American, two German POWs. Yeah, which is mirrored at the end of this sequence. Yeah, too. exactly. Um, I, I wanted to actually touch on exactly that because you've already seen that, especially at the end of an uphill battle where you've lost so many men around you. When the soldiers get to the top, they're not going to show any mercy, whether you got your hands up or not. They're just going to shoot you. Um, they're so full of anger and adrenaline and hate yeah. um, that this is like that's the only thing on their mind is just they're going to kill the Germans responsible for this. And when mm-hmm. you get to the end of this scene, it's like there's almost like a sense of confusion because right when Wade dies, then you see Captain Miller get up. But I don't even know who it is who's striking the German guy first. I'm not sure who who runs over and starts beating I don't him even up. know. I, I don't between like th- it's between like three characters i don't know if it's miller ribbons or one of the other guys um but it's almost mm-hmm. impossible to tell they cut to like this wide shot of like them all kind of like trying to get the first guy off of the german mm-hmm. and then they all want to kill the german and then upham steps in and tries to perform his like moral good deeds moment you're gonna let them kill him this is not right so- you can help me with the bodies And I mean, another sort of aspects of like this movie that are not, it's not valorous. It's not uplifting is that Upham's arc is the, like the, 
you know the loss of his humanity right he 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 is responsible for saving this soldier and then at the end of the film he sees sort of what that rot and he and he kills him instead kills him unarmed mm-hmm. um i do want to shout out this german soldier jorg stadler um in saving private ryan he's he's credited as steamboat willie um which is which is funny um his performance as he's digging his grave is fantastic and like him saying betty boop what a dish betty boop what a dish really just sort of like sticks in your head and it's pitiful and like the american soldiers are disgusted and he starts like singing the american national anthem with just the first words that he knows i say can you see i say can you see I say he knows the cadence though and it's it's like yeah he's got he's got the tune but he only knows those first words and you're just you're kind of like dude like don't like they don't want to hear you sing that like you're you're making it worse for yourself um it it it's yeah it's a really trying uh way to end this scene yeah and then of course the crux of it all is that um miller steps in and actually lets him go tell him To march a thousand paces in that direction. And he can take off the blindfold, we'll yes, be gone. And he turns himself into the first Allied patrol he comes across. They let the soldier walk, and mm-hmm. it ends up costing them in the end. But there's this, once again, a very uncommon debate in war films, I would say, is like this whole like act of dissension that then happens, where Ribbons is like, mm-hmm. I'm out. I'm out of this mission. If you're not even going to kill this German yeah. soldier who killed one of our guys, I'm out. And in or- the only way to keep him there is by resolving this bet that's been ongoing the whole mm-hmm. movie so far, apparently, and well before the movie started, where the, all the soldiers in this group are trying to figure out what Miller's profession back at home was. And he yeah. resolves this m- mounting tension by just simply saying, What's the pool on me up to right now? What, what, what's it up to? Wait, what is it? Uh, $300? Is that it? $300? I'm a school teacher. I teach English composition. This little town called Adley, Pennsylvania. It's, uh, in the last 11 years, I've been at Thomas Alva Edison High School. I was a coach of the baseball team in the springtime. Yeah, no, it's a it's a strategic move by him. I think it, it's seen as kind of heartwarming, but I also it's see it as strategy. just like he's... He's been holding on to this nugget because he knows he can use it at some point, and he deploys it very well. He may, he keeps his squad from falling apart. Well, um, and like it is a phenomenal um, little scene for Hanks. Like it's just he's firing on all cylinders. It's such a great performance. I like that he almost has this ability to like scoff through a lot of the hardship in the film. He like almost like wears a mm-hmm. big smile on his face. Uh, almost ironically yeah. at parts and it almost mm-hmm. it adds this sense of like cynicism i think to the acts of war and what it does to people mm-hmm. normally i don't fall into patriotic speeches like this um, and i'm not saying i do necessarily in this hank speech i don't think that he's particularly convincing of his decision until the very last line that we're going to talk about for this scene which is i just know that every man i kill the farther away from home i feel and I think that's what shuts everybody yeah. up. 
because you can talk about missing yeah, and home and like, how this mission is going to get you home all you want. Mm-hmm. This is the moment that changes people's minds. Yeah. It's like, we don't, we don't have to kill this guy. And there is in fact, there is a, a loss at play. There is something you will lose. So let, let's not kill him. <laughs> let's, let's kill as few as possible. Which I mean, you know, is in even like outside of him being a, a prisoner of war and having rights, you know, um, it's still like out, outside of that, like all their training as army rangers would tell them, like, no, you kill as many people as possible. Like that's what you're supposed to do. We've broken down all the barriers in your mind that would keep you from pulling a trigger otherwise. Um, so this is this sort of palpable gray area moment where he's both keeping them from from committing an atrocity but also you know maybe stopping them from following their training but but not not appealing to some sort of more virtuous part but just being like i i don't know if i'll ever be the person i once was but if we kill this guy i'll be a little bit further away from it that's right and uh, i think it's an important reminder for all the characters at this point to to take that step back especially mm-hmm. while they're all like living in the revelation of him being a school teacher which i think is mm-hmm. magnified quite a bit by the fact that it's the only question they had about their captain for so many, for so long yeah but i mean in general it's it's phenomenal scene and and i think oh you know over the course of even just discussing it it became clear how it is a little companion to the omaha beach storm which is great because, you know, normally we talk about we don't do opening scenes, but how do you not talk about the Omaha Beach sequence um, when you talk about Saving Private Ryan? And we were able to do that, obviously, but uh, I think learn a little bit more about it by looking at this um, this radar dish. Yeah, it's a, it's a great companion piece that I didn't even fully recognize as one until we started discussing it today. But mm-hmm. I like that it kind of encapsulates that. It feels very fitting because, yeah, we don't, like we, you could talk for hours and hours about that opening Omaha beach storm and all, everything that went into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this scene stands out as a lot more of a cinematic or of a character triumph moment for the audience. Like where we mm-hmm. learn so much about our characters in a 15 minute scene here. Um, it's a, it's almost yeah. a complete arc in itself, which uh, are the yeah. kinds of things we like to talk about. Absolutely. So what do you got for a shout out? Uh, my shout out is a scene you mentioned earlier. Uh, it's the scene where, uh, the, uh, the mother of the Ryans is informed of her Mm -hmm. sons, uh, the three sons deaths. Um, and I think this is as many brilliant scenes as there are in this movie direction wise. This is maybe the most brilliant visually speaking, because there's no dialogue in the, in like the three minute scene. It's all told visually Mm -hmm. and, you barely even see faces. In fact, I think you might see her face for like three shots. And then the rest of it is just on her actions. It's her washing the dishes. It's her pulling, like looking out the window at the, like through the curtain, seeing the Mm -hmm. car driving up the road. And then when she collapses on the front porch, uh, when she realizes Mm -hmm. that a soldier step or like a general or whatever steps out of the car, a military officer. Yeah. yeah. um, That's like a truly heartbreaking moment. It, it really shatters you and brings you like back to this realization of what war means to the people at home. And it's a, it's a rare moment in this movie where they shoot in like Technicolor uh, really brings mm-hmm. out that vibrant forties look of mm-hmm. like the rural home. I think mm-hmm. there is masterful direction at work here. And 
um, just the the emotion that this quick three minutes can give off is incredibly impressive and a true testament to Spielberg. Absolutely. And I think it's a great example, too, of how strong Spielberg is with uh, composition and blocking. Yeah. Um, it's something he's, he's a master at, and it's not maybe the first thing you think of half the time when, it, when it's compared to like the way he lights things or the way he, he shoots moving action or chooses what to focus on. Um, but where he puts people in his scene, foreground to background, in relation to the composition of the camera frame... Um, you know, Mother Ryan fall collapsing on the porch, and there's like a, um, you know, a religious figure, and then also the yes, military right. figure, yeah. and they're all just lined up perfectly. You can see them perfectly. It's just a wonderfully composed. Almost looks like um, like a like an American painting. Yes. you know, like yeah. like like some sort of mid century thing. It's very beautiful, and well put. Like together. just the composition of it, right? Um, In the framing. Yeah. And then, I mean, I've got a much quicker shout-out. Uh, I just want to say, I know it wouldn't have been the case at the time, but if you're making this movie now, they would probably digitally age up Matt Damon to make him look old or maybe even use prosthetic makeup. I just I find it very refreshing to see that they cast Harrison Young to play old Private Ryan in the beginning and end scenes uh, because I'm very tired of uh, CGI, aging, de-aging, etc. Just cast another person. They don't even have to look 100% alike. Audiences are really good at being like, oh, that's the same guy. You just need to give me a couple hints. Someone has to call him Ryan, James Ryan, or you can, he's got a badge on. All he needed was the blue eyes. There, there are so many ways. <laughs> there, there are so many ways to say that two different actors are playing the same character at different times. And so often they insist on, on aging and de-aging. It's so weird. Yeah, it's one thing if um, there's like a small age difference in like the older and younger version of the character you're trying to create. But for this case, thank goodness they didn't just age Matt Damon. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's old now. Or, but... or just apply like in, in, nine, in 98, like, you know, apply a ton of prosthetics to make him look old and ask him to walk old and all that stuff. This is so much simpler. I think Harrison Young does a great job in my least favorite scenes of the movie, but uh, no, it's real good. Uh, and then for uh, for recommendations, um, I've just got, I don't think I've recommended it before. We've definitely talked about it. One of Spielberg's most interesting movies, maybe my favorite Spielberg movie. Uh, it is from, I want to say 2005. It's from 2005 uh, and it's Munich. Uh, and we will definitely talk about this at some point. We didn't talk a ton about Spielberg today because we don't have five hours to record. <laughs> um, so at some point, we will certainly do a Spielberg month. I think there's a good chance Tay and I would pick Munich and then put a bunch of others up for well, vote. We know that no one else would more pick family Munich. family-friendly ones like, like E.T. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, check out Munich if you haven't. It's another very complicated one on a very complicated subject. Long. You know, like World War. A long one, too. But I love it. Yeah, Munich's one of my favorite Spielberg movies, if not like my top two. I think Jaws, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah, um, Jaws but but Mu- but Munich is a brilliant film that I've seen twice uh, in my life, and both times really stand out. Uh, the first time I saw it was very transformative for me. I was like, "Oh, I like this really boring two-hour, forty-minute movie. What's wrong with me?" I remember just being like, "Why mm. does no one else like this movie?" <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But I think Munich's brilliant. I think it won Best Picture or was nominated, you know, for a lot of that kind of stuff at the time. It's it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend that one too. Um, I'm going a bit of a different direction with mine. I'm going with a different war movie. Um, 
this is a Vietnam War movie, so no direct connection to the World War II themes, but um, probably the most uh, intriguing war documentary that I've ever seen is called Hearts and Minds. It's from 1974, directed by Peter Davis. Uh, if that year is raising some alarms, it should, because it is about the Vietnam War, and it is a film that was completed a year before the Vietnam War was even done. Uh, needless to say, this documentary was incredibly important in American culture. Basically, it was the first time that many Americans got to see the results of what they were doing in Vietnam on a big screen. They got to see the perspective of the people of Vietnam, uh, both the victims and the soldiers. And it's pretty haunting, some of the interviews they were able to get. And the interviews range from uh, soldiers to retired generals, um, very, very intense uh, scope. I think it's one of the most important documentaries ever made. And being tied to the war theme that we're going with this month, I just figured I may as well put it in this podcast. Sounds like a good call. I uh, I haven't checked that one out, so I'm definitely adding it to the old watch list on Letterboxd. Um, I think it would be a good pairing. I watched recently, uh, for the first time in a long time, like Saving Private Ryan, I watched Full Metal Jacket. So... With that in mind, I'm sure Hearts and Minds will be a pretty good or a pretty um, enriching yeah. watch, if not if not an enjoyable one. But uh, I'll check that out. And uh, that's it for the episode. We sort of switched up the order. We hope you guys appreciate it, getting to know us a little bit better. And uh, even though we really kicked and screamed about it, thank you so much for voting. Uh, you're not always going to pick the one we want you to pick, and that's what makes this interesting. Uh, but uh, Go ahead, Dick. Oh, I was just going to say thanks as well. I mean, it's good. <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing to rewatch this movie every decade. I'll say that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you can take a yeah. lot from this movie. And it really, uh, I guess, at a time where we try and remember, like, acts of war from the past in, re- in Remembrance Days and all those kinds of things, it is kind of important to get that kind of perspective once in a while. And to rewatch a movie like this that can actually give you a pretty thorough perspective on it is rare so saving private ryan remains a top top echelon war film uh a landmark of american cinema and one of spielberg's best films Mm -hmm. i think i think both it and dunkirk and so many great war movies um they make this case for film as an important medium because again so many of us are fortunate to not ever have to go to war um, and reading textbooks, even visiting museums and seeing actual items, things like that, are only so tactile an experience. And there are a lot of tools that cinema has uh, in its toolbox that can that can impart these horrors and these quandaries and these uh, moral concerns in a way that another medium may not. So, I mean, uh, it, it, it's good that we got around to war movies because I think they're an undeniably important part of it, as we talked about this movie shown in history classes and things like that and, and virtually as a document of what happened. Uh, and it's a, it's an important thing to remember about movies. They can do something that other things can't. Absolutely. Um, I do think maybe next November we mix it up from the war movies, Tim. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> we, we can find another way into war movies at another time, but, uh, with that, that's it for November. Uh, we'll catch you in a couple weeks for Prisoners with uh, James Stacy from the Grey NATO. Keep an eye out for that draw to win both a Blu-ray of Prisoners and your choice of what movie we're going to cover in an episode. If you really want us to dive into the MCU, this is the way to do it. 
the but, only uh, way. We hope it's something else. <laughs> uh, but with that, we'll see you next time, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye.